Welcome to Module 12 of Administrative Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last two modules, we talked about the triggers for procedural entitlements that stem from sources other than the delegating statute or statutes. In Module 10, we looked at two separate common law triggers. First, what I called the interest trigger, a reference to procedural fairness being owed where at issue were rights, privileges, or interests. And second, something called legitimate expectation. I proposed you tests for the application of these triggers, and we also explored exceptions, situations where there was no common law procedural fairness, such as decisions of a legislative nature. And then in Module 11, we explored two other sources, not tied to whatever procedures are promised in the specific statutes delegating power to the delegate. The first is found in Section 7 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the second is found in two provisions in the Canadian Bill of Rights of 1960. We saw that these triggers were distinguished from their common law counterparts, both by the circumstances in which they are triggered, separate tests in other words, and also the prospect that, unlike the common law, they can prevail against a statutory provision that purports to deny a given procedural entitlement. Now, in discussing all these triggers, I repeatedly said that the actual content of these procedural entitlements was not qualitatively different from source to source. That is, the content of these generic procedural entitlements, regardless of source, regardless of trigger, funnels to two broad classes of procedural rights. Audialtrum partum, the right to be heard, and nemo judix, the right to an unbiased decision maker. In the next several modules, starting with this one, we focus on this content question. We focus first on the right to be heard and its many components before turning in a subsequent module to the question of bias. Now, in relation to the right to be heard, audiolatrum, I'll divide the relevant rights into two broad categories. The first category of procedural rights I'll call knowing and conveying the case. And the second broad class of procedural rights I'll call deciding the case. So in relation to the first broad class, knowing and conveying the case, we'll be talking about notice, disclosure, representation, and hearings. And in the context of deciding the case, we'll be talking about evidence, they who hears decides, undue delay, and reasons. So let me start with an initial observation before we drill down. I'm going to draw from two lines from Justice Dixon's decision in the Martineau case. He said, the content of the principles of natural justice and fairness, and recall there's no distinction to be drawn between those two concepts, in the application of individual cases will vary according to the circumstances of each case. And you'll see that phrase repeated time and time again, circumstances of each case, colors the actual content of natural justice and procedural fairness. There's a passage in a federal court of appeal case called Gallant, which may also prove useful in a basic understanding of this variability in the content of procedural fairness. When it is said that the rules of natural justice and of fairness are flexible and vary from case to case, this means that the same general rule will produce different results if it is applied to different factual contexts. In that sense, it can be said that natural justice may or may not, according to the circumstances, require an oral hearing. This is so because in certain circumstances, it may be impossible for a person to answer adequately the case made against them unless they are heard orally. The requirement of natural justice always remains the same. 
that the person concerned be given a fair opportunity to be heard. The consequences of the application of this basic requirement vary, however, with the circumstances. Now, based on these passages, it is clear that while the general principle of fairness and of fundamental justice and of due process, depending on the trigger you're talking about, remains constant, but the particular expression of that content will vary depending on the facts. So while the standards of Audi Ultram and Nemojudix are universal, the particular procedural conduct that those standards demand will vary according to the circumstances, will vary with the facts. Clearly, this makes the content of procedural fairness very dependent on those facts and on that context and on the circumstances. Now, for ease of reference, I'm going to talk about procedural fairness for the balance of these modules on the content of the procedural entitlement. But the comments that I'm going to make in them apply equally to fundamental justice under the Charter or due process under the Canadian Bill of Rights. When confronted with a question as to how much procedural fairness one is entitled to, you have to be very concerned with the facts in your case. And sometimes the facts will mean that procedural fairness owed by the delegate is very robust, very strong. And sometimes the facts will mean that procedural fairness owed by the delegate is very limited, is very weak. Now, if I were to generalize, I'd say there are a couple of ground rules or pointers or general patterns that can be used in assessing whether the procedural fairness standard will be robust or whether it will be weak. Now, this isn't legal doctrine. We'll talk about the legal doctrine in a moment, but just here are some observations. The first general pattern. The more the delegate's decision-making functions look like a criminal or civil proceeding, that is what a court does, the more that courts on judicial review will insist on a strict array of procedural protections being offered by that delegate. So if you have an inquiry, for example, that might assign criminal or civil blame, it is more likely that procedural fairness will require strict procedural standards. This sort of conduct would be under the old system of designations, judicial or quasi-judicial. The second general pattern, basically another way of stating that first rule, the more significant the rights or interests affected, the more likely it is that courts on judicial review would require a higher level of procedural protection. And so as a general rule, the more you have at stake, the stricter will be the rules of procedural fairness. The more seriously adverse consequences to you on the receiving end of that decision, the greater the procedural protection. The third general pattern, this one cuts the other way. The procedural rules imposed should be applied so as to not frustrate a delegate's attempts to carry out their statutory obligations. So if Parliament wishes a decision to be made promptly and in a summary fashion, the courts should not rush to impose procedural niceties and requirements that frustrate or impede this effort. And so the content of procedural fairness has to be decided in a fashion sensitive to what it is that Parliament expects the delegate to do. So those would be general patterns if I were to extrapolate from the case law, but that's not sufficient. There has to be some case law. There should be some legal tests. And on the question of how much or how little procedural fairness one is entitled to, there is a test of sorts provided by the Supreme Court in its 1999 decision of Baker. Now, a caveat, it's a rather imperfect test. In my view, it creates the illusion of a sort of algorithmic certainty without providing it. And so I'll, I'll underscore Baker is a useful start in answering any question of how much procedural fairness is owed, at least for Audi rights. And, and as a further caveat, let me be clear, I think it's less relevant for nemojudix for reasons we'll discuss in a future module. 
But the bottom line is you can start with Baker, but you can't end with Baker because there are other cases that scrutinize the application of specific procedural protections, and you have to look to that case law to further inform whether that given procedural protection really applies in your case. So start with Baker, but don't end with Baker. So we're going to do just that. We're going to start with Baker. And I'm just going to provide you with a sense of the legal test that Baker articulates in addressing this question, how much procedural fairness. Now, Baker, like Supreme Court cases before it and after it emphasizes that the duty of procedural fairness is flexible and variable and depends on an appreciation of the context of the particular statute and the rights affected. So that idea of variability is baked into Baker. But several factors are in fact then enumerated as relevant in deciding what the content of the duty of fairness shall be in a given case. So first consideration, the nature of the decision being made and the process followed in making it. This prong of the test really boils down to the more court-like the decision-making body, the more that procedural protection will attach. The second consideration, the nature of the statutory scheme and the terms of the statute pursuant to which the body operates. And here, to use the Supreme Court's words, greater procedural protections will be required where no appeal procedure is provided within the statute or when the decision is determinative of the issue and further requests cannot be submitted. So to convert that into more regular language, if there's a statutory right of appeal, you're going to get less procedural protections. If the decision is final and determinative, you're going to get more. Third consideration, the importance of the decision to the individual or individuals affected. And I would say, on balance, this is the most important consideration. As the Supreme Court notes, the more important the decision is to the lives of those affected, the greater its impact on the person or those persons, the more stringent the procedural protections that will be mandated. Fourth, the legitimate expectations of the person challenging the decision. Now, we've encountered legitimate expectation before. We talked about it as a trigger. And it's a trigger that guides content because after all, if the person has a legitimate expectation that a certain procedure will be followed, this procedure should be the procedure that is followed. And so the trigger guides the content. Now, we've also said that the doctrine of legitimate expectation cannot lead to substantive rights outside of the procedural domain. We said that the promise has to be procedural in nature if it's to be enforceable as a matter of legitimate expectation. On the other hand, there's a caveat that Baker offers up. It says that if a claimant has a legitimate expectation that a certain result will be reached in their case, in other words, a substantive promise, fairness may require more extensive procedural rights than would otherwise be accorded. And so if you have a delegate out there making all sorts of substantive promises, it may well be that the court will not enforce those substantive promises because legitimate expectation cannot reach substantive promises, but the court will turn around and say, hey, if you're going to make these substantive promises, at the very least, we're going to insist on you observing greater quantums of procedural fairness. In other words, the content of procedural fairness will be more robust. And the last variable of the Baker test, perhaps the most murky, the reviewing court should be cognizant to the choice of procedures made by the agency itself, the decision maker themselves. And so weight should be given to the choice of procedures made by the decision maker and the institutional constraints on it. Now, this last variable looks a little bit like that third general pattern I 
talked about moments ago, the idea that one has to pay heed to the functions of the tribunal and not layer on so much administrative red tape as to impair those functions. And so this last variable always cuts in favor of the administrative decision maker themselves. It's a variable that that's points inevitably towards a court showing, well, a measure of deference, if you will, towards the decision maker. Again, with the thought being that one shouldn't impair their functions by retrospectively imposing all sorts of procedural requirements on them. So that's the five-pronged test of Baker. Now, Baker also said there could be other considerations, but those are the ones that Baker itself enumerates. Baker has been applied by the Supreme Court to Section 7 Fundamental Justice, and so a case called Suresh, and also by the federal court in at least one Canadian Bill of Rights case. So it's fair to say that Baker is the standing test for all the different sources of procedural entitlements, at least the standing test for those audi ultram partum rights we're about to talk about in greater detail. But the Baker test is, as I've suggested, at best a warm-up, because at best it can provide only a qualitative measure of the intensity of the procedural entitlement. And so that's why it's sometimes called an intensity test. Specifically, it tells you, well, you get a lot of procedural entitlement, or you get a little procedural entitlement, or perhaps you get something in between. It doesn't really provide you with much clarity beyond that. It's a little bit like Goldilocks and the Three Bears and Porridge. So is the porridge hot? Is it cold? Is it in between? That's really what Baker produces. And sometimes you can't even tell from the Baker test because the prongs of the test may point in different directions. Sometimes one of the prongs may point towards little procedural entitlement. Sometimes another prong may point towards lots of procedural entitlement. How do you weigh one off the other? How do you weight, in other words, these variables? And there's no mechanical way of doing so. And so my fear is that Baker basically adds, well, the impression of objectivity and simply masks a high degree of subjectivity when it comes to deciding how much procedural entitlement a decision maker owes to a given recipient of that decision. So you shouldn't stop with the Baker test. You need to also consider the case law that's developed around particular procedural entitlements that may be at issue in your case. And so that's our job for the balance of this module. We have to turn to the specific procedural entitlements associated with the right to be heard, audi ultram partum. And as I've suggested, I'm going to divide those rights into two broad categories. First, knowing and conveying the case. And second, deciding the case. And so we're going to deal with knowing and conveying the case in the balance of this module. So we already know that the precise content of Audi Ultram will vary in the circumstances, but is there some bare minimum standard that has to be met? Is there a basement floor below which a decision maker cannot go? Is there some basic level of procedural guarantee? Well, the basic principle of Audi Ultram is this. Delegates must always give a fair opportunity to those who are parties in the controversy for correcting and contradicting any relevant statement prejudicial to those parties. So you'll always have to have an opportunity to be heard on the merits of the decision. And for that to happen, what do you need? Well, there are certain basic requirements. At minimum, you need notice. You can't have a right to be heard if you don't know about a decision the administrative decision maker is contemplating. And so people affected by a potential decision must be told about it. Remember poor Mr. Cooper from Cooper versus Board of Works, that old English case? Remember Mr. Cooper's house was knocked down because he did not give the requisite notice? He was, he was given no opportunity to be heard on whether his house should be knocked down. He didn't even know what was going to happen. The city officials who knocked down his house arrived in the middle of the night. So without notice, you can never have an opportunity to be heard. Now to be effective, 
notice must meet certain prerequisites. There has to be enough detail about the decision and the arguments and evidence marshaled against the person that they can make a meaningful submission of their own. How can you speak intelligently and be heard when you don't know the details? And so reasonable and adequate notice requires that the notice give an accurate description of the true nature and scope of the decision. And the more detail, the better. The notice must also be timely. You have to get it in enough advanced time that you really do have a legitimate opportunity to be heard. Now, if the notice is improper or inadequate, this is more than a slight technicality. A failure to give adequate notice will render the delegate's decision void. Related to notice is the broader concept of disclosure. More than notice, giving a fair opportunity to those who are parties in a controversy to correct or to contradict or to respond to relevant statements that go against their case requires a fairly substantial degree of disclosure of the case to be met as it develops. And so you may have notice of a decision, you may know what it's about, you may know that the government has some sort of case that you have to respond to. In order to do so effectively, there may be an ongoing obligation to provide you with fuller information. As you know, civil and criminal proceedings have strict codes for the disclosure of evidence, and they provide for a process of discovery involving the exchange of information in civil litigation from one party to the other. And in the criminal context, you're familiar with the Stinchcomb disclosure obligations on the Crown. What about administrative proceedings? In the exercise of delegated power, what sort of disclosure obligations do delegates have as a matter of procedural fairness? Well, no shock. The extent of disclosure varies with the circumstances. And so you can really envisage the extent of disclosure as perhaps being on a bit of a spectrum. On the one hand, it's simply the requirement that the person be told verbally the gist of the allegations and the nature of the decision to be made. And on the other end of the spectrum, the party may be entitled to review all relevant information in the files of the delegate. In fact, in some contexts, the degree of disclosure may be as robust as it would be in a civil or criminal proceeding. So let's talk about the considerations that come into play in determining where a delegate lies on this spectrum. In practice, of the Baker considerations, the most important element in determining what sort of disclosure is required is probably the seriousness of the consequences of the decision on the rights of the individual. The nature of the decision may also be relevant. There is some authority, for instance, that a court is less likely to require strict disclosure requirements where the delegate has a more economic regulatory function and no power to affect human rights in a way akin to, say, criminal proceedings. And there's a flip side to this as well, where the tribunal proceedings do have those kind of serious consequences and are akin to criminal proceedings, then we're likely to require more disclosure. The most common example of where disclosure may be relatively robust would be things like administrative bodies who are disciplining professionals or revoking licenses or otherwise affecting someone's livelihood. And perhaps the most extreme example of where robust disclosure is required is a case called Sharkawi from the Supreme Court. At issue there was the immigration removal of a person feared to be a security threat, possibly a removal where that person might be maltreated in the country to which they were deported. And so at issue there was how much disclosure must the government make to that individual, or at least because the information was classified to the court and a group of individuals known as special advocates able to act on behalf of the individual. There, the court concluded that the level of disclosure must be quite robust. In fact, arguably in practice, 
as robust as the sort of disclosure you find in criminal contexts. All right, so we've dealt with notice, we've dealt with disclosure. There's also the question of representation. Does procedural fairness guarantee you an opportunity to make submissions via counsel, someone to advocate on your behalf? Well, at common law, there is no universal right to representation during an administrative proceeding. Often the courts justify this position with reference to that third general pattern that we talked about before, which was also reflected in that fifth prong of the Baker test, namely this idea of administrative efficiency and some deference to the mandate of the administrative tribunal to conduct its affairs in as expeditious a manner as possible. And so counsel is widely regarded as imposing burdens on administrative decision-making, fairly, I would say. On the other hand, a number of instances might lead the court to require a right to counsel as part of procedural fairness. And so the sort of considerations that might motivate this that you find in the case law, well, first, the legal complexity of the issues. The more complex, the more likely a court on judicial review would say the administrative tribunal must allow counsel. Second, the nature of the interests at stake and the potential consequences of the decision on those interests. And so again, the more serious the consequences, the more likely the court will require counsel. Third, the affected person's inability to represent themselves. In other words, the less capable the person is of representing themselves, the more likely the court will be to require counsel as a matter of procedural fairness. There are also some cases where at issue was a charter right, and there the court concluded that because a charter right was at issue, counsel was required. Now, I want to underscore, just because Section 7 is triggered does not automatically give you a right to counsel. Remember, just like with common law procedural fairness, the content of fundamental justice varies with the circumstances. But generally speaking, all else being equal, if there's a charter right at issue, it's more likely that counsel is required. Now, another point here about the right to counsel, the fact that you've got a right to counsel doesn't mean you have a right to have the tribunal or the decision maker pay for your counsel. Just to be clear here, the right to representation is the right to have someone else speak for you, not a right to have the state pay for that counsel. So what then is the role of counsel should it exist as a matter of audio trumpartum? Well, generally speaking, counsel and the party they're representing are both entitled to be present and to be consulted throughout, say, an oral hearing. And we'll talk about oral hearings in a moment. But the right to representation does not necessarily imply an automatic right to cross-examine witnesses. I'll talk about cross-examination in a moment. The right to cross-examine as a matter of all the ultrapartum looks at similar considerations as the right to counsel, but they need not overlap completely. All right, let's move on then to our last consideration in this first set of audio ultrapartum procedural entitlements, that is the right to a hearing. Now, what does that mean? At its most basic level, the right to a hearing is what the right to be heard is all about. A right to be heard requires a hearing in which you have an opportunity to make submissions before a decision is made. The question we have to grapple with is, what form does this right to make submissions take? For example, do you have a mere right to make written submissions? Or do you have a right also to make oral submissions? Well, like all things involving the content of procedural fairness, the answer to this question, pause, depends on the circumstances. The Audi Ultrampartum rule has no absolute requirement that a person be given a chance to make oral submissions. Frequently, in fact, fairness is satisfied by an opportunity to make written submissions not to be heard orally. 
And so if oral hearings aren't automatically and always required to satisfy audiultrum partum, where are they necessary? Well, let's take a few examples from the case law. The case law suggests that an oral hearing will most often be required where, first example, credibility of the parties is a factor in the outcome. Our court system presumes that credibility is best assessed by a person presenting orally in front of the decision maker. And that presumption, which is found in civil and criminal proceedings, carries over also into the administrative law context. So if credibility is at issue, if one of the questions before the decision maker is whether someone is lying or not, then it's more likely that an oral hearing is required as a matter of procedural fairness. Another consideration is the affected person's level of education or their familiarity with the proceedings. These sorts of considerations might make it more difficult for them to prepare written submissions. And so here, oral hearings may also be obligatory as a matter of procedural fairness. So let's assume that oral hearings are in fact required. How must that oral hearing be conducted? Must it be in public? Well, it's a basic principle that all hearings should be held in public. The public has an interest in seeing that the proceedings are properly conducted and that the parties are treated fairly. And so they should be open unless there are compelling reasons to keep the public out. The onus is always on the person requesting privacy to establish that, for example, there's harm that could result from permitting the public to attend. Now here, of course, I'm talking about procedural fairness, fundamental justice, due process stemming from these generic sources of procedural entitlement. There are instances where statutes themselves in creating the procedural code for the decision maker may provide for what are known as in camera, that is non-public or even ex parte, that is without one of the parties present hearings. Why? Because often at issue might be things like national security. And so in the Sharkawi case that I mentioned a few moments ago, immigration security certificates leading to the removal of the individual on national security grounds or statutorily ex parte and in camera. That is behind closed doors and in the absence of the interested party. What about this issue of cross-examination? If there's a right to counsel and there's an oral hearing, do you have a right to cross-examination? Well, not automatically. And so the considerations that might drive a right to cross-examination include instances where there is conflicting evidence or again where credibility is at issue their cross-examination may be the only means by which to extract truth from the contradictory evidence so that's all i'm going to say about this first branch of audi ultram partum that is procedural rights associated with knowing and conveying the case when we come back in the next module we'll focus on those procedural rights associated with deciding the case until then this ends Module 12.